turn with me to Luke chapter 18 as we continue our journey through Luke's gospel. Uh, Stand with me when you get there and we'll read through the first 17 verses. Remaining centered in Christ. Then he spoke a parable to them that men ought always to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a woman in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said, shall, and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? And he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then they brought infants to him that he might touch them. And when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Amen. You may be seated. We're all aware, as, especially as we age, uh, that we have body rhythms. And it's, we have a schedule we try to keep to. We try to go to bed on a decent hour. We rise at the same time each morning, or try to, <laughs> get, get ourselves ready for work and out the door. And we, through the week, develop this body rhythm, and we sort of sometimes fight against this six-day work day, one-day Sabbath or day of rest. We're not under the law, but we need to rest. It sort of goes, uh, if you realize, uh, if, when you violate that, uh, something happens. It sort of goes against the grain of the universe, right? <laughs> uh, that's... H.H. H. Farmer, a philosopher, said, if you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. <laughs> and it's another way of saying, when you violate the spiritual laws of God put in place for the benefit of mankind, you feel the pain. And for those of us who think we can work extra and 
get out of that rhythm, um, we feel that pain. Unfortunately, on a personal level, I violated that more than I'd like to admit. Those of you who are workaholics understand exactly what I'm talking about. You know, they've done a lot of studies on productivity uh, because it's all about making a profit in the business world, is it not? And the general consensus of that is that once you reach your certain hours uh, in the week, your productivity plummets. And uh, you wanna, anybody want to take a guess on what that number might be? Yeah, 50. Isn't that ironic? That's about a six-day work week. One study found that there's zero difference in productivity between workers who logged 70 hours and those who logged 55. So in our modern culture, we struggle to abstain, obtain a balanced lifestyle. You know, the Bible talks about David, and he's a special guy. He was a warrior for the Lord. You look in chapter uh, 16 of 1 Samuel, you get this list of how he, his character is noted by one of Saul's cabinet members who was assigned the job of finding a musician to play before him because he was being demonized. And one of the characteristics that David was labeled with was that he was comely in the King James, in the ESV or the English version, which is a good translation, uh, a man of good presence. Of course, um, in the New King James, I think it reads uh, that he was handsome. So we know David was a, a good-looking fellow. That's not really the issue. But the idea that you can easily overlook is what's on the inside of David that was good. Um, he was a well-balanced. The word that's used there, uh, to'ar, means outline or form. Uh, but it, the, the emphasis on the inner man would be that they were well-balanced. I think that's what we all seek for, isn't it, in life, to be balanced in our lives. You know, we have to work, yes. We also need to rest. You know, as the old saying goes, uh, all work and no play makes for a dull boy. Uh, just ask my wife if you don't think that's true. <laughs> you got to have balance in your life. Now, the thing about truth is... We need balance in truth. If a person, uh, you can easily overemphasize the truth or you can underemphasize the truth, right? Uh, if you, how do you know if someone's really overemphasizing the truth? Well, that's all they talk about. <laughs> right? Okay, got it, right? I got it. <laughs> or if a person who underemphasizes the truth, they never talk about it. But what's the balance? You need both. You have to talk about it. Centered in truth only comes from the wisdom of the Lord. And God gives wisdom to all who ask for it. So this morning, this passage here, we're going to look at three things in these 17 verses uh, that primarily doing, do deal with this balance in life that we all desperately need. And the first one, as you know, one of our favorite subjects in our church here is prayer. Kind of how to, how to pray and maybe how not to pray in the first 14 verses. And then we'll talk about the importance of humility and then overcoming self-righteousness. So let's, and we won't, probably won't get to, the, to that one in verse 18, but we will do the first two at least. So 
Look in here. We all know how powerful prayer is. We think about in your own life how many times God has delivered you. You know, sometimes you think, man, Lord, when are you going to come through? But then all of a sudden, boom, it happens. It comes through. He catches us off guard half the time when the answers come through. Like, whoa, didn't expect it to happen quite like that. I love those kind of surprises. But this story of the unjust judge and the widow is talking about our attitude towards prayer and that of being persistent. Uh, It's uh, men ought always to pray and not lose heart. Well, why would he say that? Because we have a tendency to become discouraged. When we pray and we pray, I've been asking God for this for so long, we act like little kids. How long, Lord? Are we there yet? You know, the whole idea of as children, we're very impatient. We're, we're sort of like that in our prayer life, if you're honest with yourself, with God. Like, I mean, we like things done instantly. We want to know something, it's just typing into Google. Boom, we know, we now know it. Because we can do it instantly. We think that transfers into the spiritual realm. Well, we find out that that's not the way it works. So he speaks this parable of the unjust judge and the widow to bring contrast between how the earthly people deal with things and how our Heavenly Father deals with things. Look at this unjust judge as we've read here. He didn't fear God and he didn't have no respect for men. Sounds kind of familiar. (laughs) Unfortunately, our judicial system is absolutely a train wreck. It is so stopped up and so backed up on cases, it's ridiculous. A lot of lazy people, you know, just, you know, riding the gravy train, getting paid each week, and who could could care less about any kind of productivity. You know, he didn't fear God. He didn't respect his fellow man. This probably guy, he's probably not a very nice guy. I mean, I mean, it's, it's just, if you don't, Respect God and you don't respect other people. I don't think you're going to be a very nice person. See you later. I don't think I want to associate with you, right? And, the, and then we see this, obviously, this widow that's in need. And she needs help. You know, women, are, and especially widows who have no one for a covering and help and assistance, can easily be taken advantage of. And so she had this thing going on. She needed justice. I mean, how many people, how many of us like to be wronged? Nobody's signing up for that in any time in the near future. It just happens, though. But there's something deep within every human being, is there not, that cries out for justice. When you've been wronged, it needs to be made right. It may not be able to be totally fixed, but you want to know that the person who did this is being held accountable for their actions. That's the cry of the human heart. That justice is deeply within us because it's the characteristic of our Father in Heaven. She came continually. We have this saying, the squeaky hinge gets the oil, <laughs> right? So be squeaky. Squeak, 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 squeak them, right? In your prayers to God, it may sound like you're doing that, but this is what she did. She was relentless with her, her persistence as well to have this guy deal with her situation. And we see the response of the unjust judge here. First of all, was straight arm. Just verbal straight arm. I don't want to deal with you. I've got a hundred other cases. See you later. That didn't slow her down at all. She probably sort of expected this. 
and she wasn't going to be denied. Finally, after this, as we've read, this long duration, it's like, okay, I can't deal with this. <laughs> no mas. We're going to take care of this situation. She's troubling me. So the idea that Jesus is trying to communicate is the difference between the unjust judge and God our Father. The unjust judge doesn't care about anybody else but himself. I think that's pretty safe to say. On the other hand, God loves mankind. He's infinitely in love. He's especially in love with those who are loyal to him. Secondly, we don't trouble God. We don't wear him out with our relentless prayers or our squeaking about our situation. You're not a bother to God. How many people, how many little kids, oh, they're such a bother. They don't believe the scriptures, do they? The Bible says children are a blessing. It was hard to stop at five, frankly. <laughs> yes, they are a blessing. Kids are a wonderful blessing. But you're not a bother to God. The attitude that God has actually is the extreme opposite. What can I do to help you? How can I help you? What's on your mind? Oh, let me help you. But you need, what's the rule? Ask. You have to ask. You have to talk to him. Relationship is built on what? Communication. Conversation. He tells us a lot from here, does he? We respond to that. You read the word, you pray the word, and watch the Lord do wonders in your heart and in your life. It's the way it works. You could never weary God. You could never, ever weary God with your coming to him. He knows all and he will act accordingly. The thing is, this unjust judge moved out of his own frustration. God doesn't move out of his fr he's frustration. Oh, fine, I got to deal with this kid. Oh, my goodness. No, it's not like that. He, he, it's, I don't know about you, but there are lots of times, how long, oh, Lord? I get the phrase of David really well in my life. How long, oh, Lord? Well, it's because when we pray, God isn't in, in and just make you satisfied. He's going to answer this prayer that's an all-in-companyness in, in, in its answer. Not just you, but others. See, there's a, happiness is for kind of an individual thing. But when you're blessed by God, it, it, it not only affects you, it affects your, those surround you in your sphere of influence. This is true. We all understand this principle from Abraham. I will bless you and make you a blessing. When you're blessed of God, then somehow that spills over in other people's lives. You know, God does those little individual things for us. I'm not trying to diminish that. That does happen. But, but when God is working to answer prayers, he's going to answer it, but it's going to be a lot more effectual and more impacting than we could ever imagine. God always gives us more than we ask for. I found that to be so true. I think our impatience arises from our ignorance of what God is doing and really what's transpiring in the heavenly realm. We some, 
We have these remor remarkable forgetters that we're in a, this cosmic warfare, that between heaven and earth there's a darkness and this, these people who've been booted out of heaven intercept the angels that are coming from heaven with our answer. And we get this picture, you know, in Daniel's, you know, seven and eight, and you read through there when he's having these interactions uh, with Gabriel, right? And you like, oh, look, I, I started out 21 days ago when you started praying, but man, I got hit with these guys, and, and here's the message, but as soon as I leave, I got to go fight this guy. I mean, you get the idea of what's going on in that heavenly realm. We forget that when we pray, that Satan does not want your prayers answered. He wants you to live destitute, he wants you to become impatient and angry with God. If God really loved me, you know, then, you know, God really loved you. He would, he would have answered this by now, but he really doesn't love you. Don't even bother anymore. You ever hear those kind of voices? Yeah, well, that's the way. We're in a war. One of the first casualties in war is what? Truth. So easy to believe a lie. So easy to be deceived. See, we don't. We are unable to see this networking process that takes place. So you pray something and you have no idea that it involves several other people. Well, those other people may not be in a position to receive what God wants to give them. So he's working in their lives as he's working in your life to bring about this massive blessing that you've been praying for. And you just got to get a big picture. Try to... Try to pray. When you pray big, this is what happens. It's going to take sometimes longer for it to manifest. But these are the kind of prayers, when they are answered, they bring tremendous glory and honor and praise to God. Every one of us are just in awe of what God is doing. And isn't that a wonderful thing? I think it's, hopefully that encourages you. We're exhorted in the scriptures to be patient, are we not? James 5, 7, if you want to pull that up back there. He's got it. Good. There you go. Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer awaits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until he receives it from the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I know it sure looks like it, like the Lord's coming is right around the corner, and would to God it would be. But it may not be. There's a lot of saber rattling going on right now in the Middle East. It looks like it. But what did Jesus tell us? He said, watch and pray. Occupy till I come. It means do business. Stay, stay at your station and do your job. I'm not going to affect anything that's going on in the Middle East except through my prayers. That's what I can do. That's my job is to pray. That's my sphere of influence. I can trust God for him to do great and mighty things to protect his people, to deliver his people. But did he not also say that in the end times it would be a time of deception, a time of persecution, and there would be wars and rumors of wars? This is possible that this, this is more, more of a rumor, you know, in, in the sense that it's not going to go any further than, than it has and it may de-escalate. And that's our prayer. <laughs> Some of you might want to, no, no, little DS. Let's get on with that. I'm out of here. I want to get out of here. I, uh, hold on. <laughs> the Lord's will be done. <laughs> but, uh, be patient. Let's our heart, let our hearts be established. Because whether he's coming now in the rapture to take us, his co coming, maybe some other form. You don't, you're not guaranteed tomorrow. 
Neither am I. We've, we all know that. The losses that several of us in this congregation have lost loved ones in the recent past. It's painful. It's harmful. It's a harsh reality. The important thing is that we're ready. Praying will get you ready. You see, God will answer our prayers because his timing is perfect. That's the other thing that comes into answer prayer. The timing issue. You, you, we can get in the way. I believe God has to hide what he's doing from us because we'd get all excited like little kids and get in the way. You know, you try to have your little one help. You do some chore around here and they, they're so excited. They get right in the way. It's like, hold on, Junior. Just wait, 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 wait. Now you can do it. You know, that's what we do. We, we get all excited about what God's doing and we, we do, so we'd mess it up. So he has to hide it from us until the right time and when we're not paying attention, he slips it in there. <laughs> you know, that's great. God is so smart. He's so wise and he's so loving. It says, will he not avenge? He will avenge. See, that's another lie. God doesn't really care. Look, you think those people are going to be punished for what they did to you? Oh, he will avenge. You know, somebody goes to stick a pokey thing in your eyeball. You know, them's just not fighting words. That's going to bring a fight on. You know what? You are the apple of God's eye. And when the enemy comes after you and he does something to you, it's like poking God in the eye. And do you think he's going to sit back and take that? And just with folded hands sitting upon his throne and, oh, well, I think not. Any loving father that has their child injured by someone, that person is in trouble because that's what we do. We are protectors, and God is a protector. Make no mistake, God will exact justice. Nobody gets away with anything. We're all accountable to God. Just because we don't see justice, just because we don't see them brought down, doesn't mean it isn't happening or it will not happen. It's just a matter of time. He'll execute it. Now, at the end of, um, in verse 8, the end of the verse there, near the end, he re- speaks of the Son of Man. And I want really, I know you guys know that I've brought this up several times, but I'm going to do it again because I need to have this, and you need to have this framework drilled into your mind because it'll, it'll bless you continually. This is Daniel 7, 9 through 15. See, when we read through Luke's gospel, and he's always referring to the Son of Man, we think, well, that's old. Luke's referring to him as a human. But it's actually more of a, a, re, a reflection of who he really is, deity. The Son of Man is a title of deity. And how do I know that? Well, one of the passages I refer to is in Daniel 7, 9 through 15. Just, now just think about this and you know, imagine in your mind this happening in the very near future. I watched beginning verse 9 till thrones were in place don't you get excited about this oh I get so excited about this the ancient of days was seated the garment his garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool his throne was a fiery flame its wheels a burning fire a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him a thousand thousands ministered to him 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated. The books were opened. 
Does this scene and description sound familiar? Take a look at Revelation 1 in your free time. Verse 11 says, I watched then because the sound of the pompous words of the horn who's speaking will be the Antichrist that's going to come on the scene at some point in time. I watched until the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, which had, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And this is important here. This is the, the crux of it. Verse 13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed and I Daniel was grieved in my spirit with my within my body and the visions of my head troubled me again this is a godly man who's having an inner action with the spirit realm and receiving this revelation and you can see how it affects him his human body we're not built for that kind of interaction naturally we have to be strengthened you read about his interactions yes well he was an old guy i've got a feeling uh, he was in pretty good shape as an elderly guy but the effects that we have uh, is it's, it's just something that we're not built for that's why you gotta get a new one are you are you we're all getting a new you know this old uh, 1.0 going away. 2.0 is coming quickly. A body in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we're all going to be changed. Woo! -hoo. This mortal will put on immortality. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Won't that just be a great moment? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that's pretty quick. The sting of death out, over. Sing out, over. Isn't that great? You'll have a new body just like that. I don't put a smile on your face. But notice there, one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds. You know anybody by chance who's coming on the clouds? Yeah. So you get the idea how important this is to have that understanding. And so the idea of praying with Persistence is so important. And I believe verses 9 through 14 in this character of the Pharisees kind of illustrate how we're not to pray and to be sort of self-examining in ourselves. I think we're called to have humility in our prayers. And so uh, let's look at the character here of the Pharisee. And now here's... Let's kind of pull back and look at the, what was going on in this particular time in the gospel. Jesus is making his trip from the Galilee area up through Judea. They're going to swing over, catch the road, the King's Highway near the Jordan River, and they're going to go up you know, south and then take a right and head up to Jerusalem. And that's all elevation-wise, topography-wise, they're climbing an elevation. And what they would do because of the times in which they lived, they would caravan. And as they moved up that trail, the bigger and larger the caravanning groups would become. They would have to stop and eat. They would stop. And we're talking about 80-mile trek here. 
So it's, it's quite, quite the trek, three times a year that they would make for the feast. They're going up to Jerusalem for the Passover. So you wonder, well, where are these Pharisees coming from? Well, they may have stopped at a synagogue or two along the way, but once they get on the road, the Pharisees have to, that live in those areas and minister in those synagogues, they have to go to the... So they're joining the caravan. So they would stop, they would rest, they would eat together, they would have these things. And Jesus took advantage of this situation. He course, ordained by the God, to teach, to instruct. And so you kind of, you know, have that framework, you kind of see how some of these things uh, played out. And so uh, he's just simply ministering to the surrounding audience here. And uh, it probably didn't really matter what Jesus said, he was going to offend the leaders because they just were not on board with his ministry, him or his ministry. But what do we see here, first of all, uh, in his prayer, this is a parable, this is a story, probably has some truth to it, uh, but to illustrate a greater truth of, of not being self-righteous, but this is what we see here. Uh, number one, that he was trusted in himself, self-trust. Uh, this is a person who uh, relied on himself. He had big bootstraps that he would pull himself up by, and he didn't need anybody else to help him do anything, right? Uh, trust, there's Theo, and we're, uh, the idea here is, is he's being persuaded, trusting in himself. That there's no other persuasion in his life but himself. Uh, self-worship, in a sense. And we can see this evidence here in verse 11, where he's, he's standing, he stood and prayed thus with himself. He's standing, which means there's no bowing, which is... No humility, the absence of humility, and praying within himself. He's not talking to God. He's not praying to God. He's having this little inner conversation with himself. He may have mentioned God, but in reality, he's not talking to God. And I don't know that the Lord's listening to him, if you know what I mean. Just a tad narcissistic, would you say? He's self-righteous. He uses God in vain. He's telling God. He's not asking God. He's telling God. There's no personal need, at least from his perspective. What is he doing? He's comparing himself to other people. And he uses the standard of men rather than the standard of God. And you can see the list of don'ts. It's quite lengthy. I'm better than everybody else, essentially is what he's saying. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not a wolf. I don't take what... Things by force from other people. I'm not an unjust person. I don't violate your law. I'm not crooked, you know. I'm not an adulterer. I'm faithful, you know. I'm not like this tax collector who takes money, you know. He's a traitor to our country, taking people money from your people, giving it to the Romans, you know. And, I, and so that's his list of don'ts. There's things that he doesn't do. They're well beneath him. And then there's the list of do's. It's a short list. I fast and I give tithes. Okay. <laughs> the third thing that he does, not only does he, is he self-trusting and self-righteous, he's also a, one who judges others. He disdains others. Literally despises other people. No, you're not like that tax collector. I'm pretty sure I agree with that statement. <laughs> You're not like that guy, because we see uh, some pretty 
admirable qualities in him in a minute here. He is standing there comparing himself to other people, and it's really, he's got a hatred. He's not very unloving. He compares himself to the people who are marginalized. So he's of the elite status. It's kind of like it, we have this caste system, whether it's un, unknown to us, that we can never enter into that elite. We are the deplorables, right? We're the great unwashed. They look, we're just there at their disposal to use for whatever votes or whatever. You know, that's just the way it is. So he's, this guy's comparing himself to those who have been marginalized. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, the Samaritans, not, not purebreds, lepers, Gentiles, you know, the great unwashed. You know, this is all contrary to the self-righteous Pharisee. But let's look at, move on from that ugliness to the character of the tax collector. Number one is he stood afar off. I'm not worthy of your presence, God. I'm a, I'm a Gentile, possibly. So that means he's got to be in the outer court, didn't have the privilege of the oracles of God or having the laws given to really know and appreciate how Yahweh was to be worshipped. He has guilt and shame. You know, he's taken a job that marginalizes him. He's got to take care of his family. You know, who knows what's going on there. You know, he's contemplating his life, which is what we all do, do we not? We contemplate our station, where we're at, our activities. Does our mind condemn us? Does our heart condemn us? Or do, are we free? Are we living, walking in peace and enjoying the love of God? Are we living self-condemned lives? We do that when we come into the presence of God. It's just a natural thing to do. He would look, he wouldn't even look up to heaven. I, I'm just so ashamed. He knows, he sees himself in the light of truth and he's humbled by the gap of what he should be and could be and what he really is. But what he really is is really valuable. He's honest in heart. This is so important. That we, you, all of us have this inner conversation going on. Nobody talks to you more than you talk to you. It's okay to talk to yourself. This whole inner conversation going on. I know what you're thinking Sometimes it's hard to find intelligent conversation otherwise. <laughs> so you know, we, the important thing about that inner conversation that we're having with ourselves, as I've said over and over, make sure you're telling yourself the truth. This is what this guy was doing. He knew he needed mercy. He understands his place. He's a sinner. He's comparing himself not to this Pharisee and not to other people, but to God. God is holy and he is not and he knows it. See, this is the thing. How does a sinning human being become justified before God? That is the, that is the quandary. That is the big question. By nature, and you may have felt this way coming in here this morning. I don't know if I should be here, man. This is the presence. I sense the presence. You feel like you're standing afar off. You're, or it may be not quite that drastic. It'd be just a, a reluctance to get involved. I don't know if I should raise my hand. Well, I don't have to do that. Not everybody does. Okay, cool. 
There just might be a reluctance. You might be actually resisting a little bit of what God's spirit wants to do by just setting you free and just really forgiving you and you sensing that release. So we, want to, we stand afar off. There's a reluctance to get involved. We feel unworthy. Well, if you felt that way this morning, join the crowd. Does any of us deserve to be here? Do we really deserve to be saved? No, it's all about grace. It's all about his mercy. See, it is really all about who he is and how much he loves us, which we just, like, hard to get our minds around that. Really? I mean, you know, you look in the mirror, you think, what's to love? I mean, really? <laughs> right? I mean, this is the kind of thing that goes on in our lives. But who can stand in the presence of the Lord? He's holy and we're not. See, it takes faith, doesn't it? It takes faith to accept the words of Christ that we are acceptable because our sins have been forgiven. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What a gift that God is offering to you and to me. The only thing that can free us from our guilt is the precious blood of Christ applied and that comes through having an attitude like this tax collector who saw himself in the light. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. When you cry out and anyone who cries out for forgiveness and for mercy, they will receive it. I believe that God is so, so looking for any way to just let everybody off the hook. He doesn't want anybody to perish. But there has to be that brokenness and that recognition and honesty of humility to say, this is who I am and I need help. That's what he's talking about here. And we'll finish in a minute here with the little children. See, spirit-instructed people understand this process of being honest with God. How is it that we think we could hide from him? I mean, the Bible declares that all things, are, all things are open and naked unto him whom we have to deal with. So you might as well just come clean because you're not hiding, I'm not hiding anything from Yahweh. And this is what that tax collector did. And so we see in these last two, three verses here, 15 through 17, the importance of humility. And what is humility in simple terms? It's just being honest with yourself, honest with other people. And more importantly, honest with God. In the privacy of your own heart, you've got to be honest with Him. You know, I think the most important thing is to tell the Lord exactly how you feel, because He can handle it. When you're angry, Lord, I'm angry. Lord, I'm, I'm really resentful. I've got to be honest with you, Lord, I hate that guy. I just don't like that guy. That guy's a jerk. And I know I shouldn't feel this way. And I need you to change my heart. Please forgive me. I know I'm a jerk, so I've done, I've done the worst things in him probably, so, oh, God, have mercy. See, you work through it. You just work through it. And you know he doesn't trash you for that. He doesn't condemn you for that. Actually, that's how you get free from it. It's the truth. It sets us free, right? See, the only thing that can give you and I the correct self-analysis is the Word of God. You're not going to go through this conscience thing and work it all out. You and I need something to look at and something to hear, and it's the Word of God. 
James 1, 21 through 25. I mean, I love James. That guy just, just, just lays it out there, doesn't he? Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful here, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. And so this is our responsibilities as, as his children. To just look in the mirror of his word. And as you read it, you apply it by the Spirit. When you realize you violated, you've crossed the line, then you admit it. And as you walk through that and work through that, God sanctifies, transforms. He gives you a new heart. He, he, you grow and mature and become all that God intends you to be. You know, these disciples see this whole thing happening on the, their caravanning way up to Jerusalem. And it's the mothers. Moms are bringing their kids to Jesus. Oh, hold on. I actually think the disciples felt that they were bodyguards for Jesus. And you got to come through us before. We're the screeners. And, of course, women, unfortunately, and children even lower than that, were on the lower side of the social scale at that time. It's kind of like, look, Jesus is busy. He doesn't have time for you. You know, that's kind of the way it was. But actually, in reality, the disciples were just following cultural norms. We've got to be careful with that, do we not? What's being put on us now is just as wrong as some of that stuff that was being put on them back then. And you can figure out what I'm talking about. Children at that time were a bother. They're not that important. You know, important people have important things to do, and they don't have time for you. Well, let's just be clear. Jesus didn't need any bodyguards, right? We're, we're, we're okay with that? He didn't need any bodyguards. He could pull down 12, 12 legions of angels if he needed them. He didn't. The Lord's his protection, right? There's only really, I can only think of, and it might be more than this, but in this context, I can... Think of only two reasons why uh, there would be restrictions in coming to Jesus. And one of them, the first one, is personal hang-ups. We can't overcome them. We can't overcome the, the unworthiness that we may feel and the condemnation that the enemy is putting upon us because nobody sinned as much as I have. Uh, excuse me? I doubt it. I doubt that anyone can, can say that in, in this place. That's just a lie from the enemy. Have you murdered? Murders are forgiven. Do you persecute God's people, the church? See, Paul was a murderer, persecuted God's church, killed people. He thought he was doing God's service. I mean, how blind can you be, right? So, 
Don't let your personal hang-ups or your failures keep you from coming to Jesus. You know, because it creates an unwillingness for you to seek him out, and you're missing out completely if you do that. And the other thing, I think, in his day, what kept people from coming to him was the crowds. It's just too many people wanted to see Jesus. Too many people wanted to hear Jesus. And the thing that I like about this is I think Jesus changed the, the disciples' minds about kids. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Let them come to me. Let them come. You know, laying on of hands because they wanted Jesus to touch. Why is that special? Why do we have oil back there, downstairs, in the prayer room? Because we believe in the scriptures. We anoint with oil in the name of the Lord that's representative of the Spirit. But we're laying hands on people because laying on of hands is, it indicates a couple different things. Number one, it's identification. We're identifying by laying out of hands, you know. The, the, the Old Testament sacrifice was you putting your hand on the sacrifice as the knife goes through the throat and the blood is caught. You are transferring and identifying as a sinner and this animal is now taking the guilt in your place. So there's a transfer, there's identification that's there. The mothers wanted their children to identify with Christ and he was so willing to do that. Forbid them not, right? What is it about little children? They're pretty cool. I just, we were all there once, right? What is about children? Generally, they have a tender heart. They're soft and that impressionable. The Bible tells us uh, in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 32, to be Kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. That's what he's talking about. If you're going to go into the kingdom, you've got to be a good forgiver. In order to forgive people, you have to have a tender heart. You can't let people's offenses and what they do to you harden your heart. That's the temptation that we have. Number two thing, and there's more than to this list, and it won't be exhaustive. We're coming to a close here is that they're trusting. You know, they're so trusting they can easily be fooled. You know, magicians have a great audience with children. <gasps> Where'd the coin go? You know, you know, they mouth gape easily, right? <laughs> There's just something about trusting God and just trust, and, and mouth gaping before God. Wow, way to go, God. You can do that all day long if you want. I mean, yes, he's awesome. But we have to have a trusting heart. We have to have a humble heart. Little kids are honest. They couldn't hide their guilt if they tried. Were you, Junior, were you in the cookie jar? No. What's that on your cheek? A crumb. Ooh. Guiltly as charged. You know, but they can't hide it. The face gives it all away, right? So we need a humble, honest heart before God. And as I said, a forgiving heart. I think, I don't, and as we close here, I don't think there's a greater need in our lives than we have a forgiving atmosphere in our homes. Because those that we're closest to, those that we, you know, hang around with the most, right, are the ones that we can offend 
I mean, you know, you put two or a number of fallen people together in a closer space, sparks are going to fly. So we have to learn how to be good forgivers. It starts in the home. Husbands have to forgive their wives. Wives have to forgive their husbands. Children have to forgive their parents. Parents have to forgive their children. It's all around. It never stops. It's what we have to do. You know, this is really, this is pretty hard hitting, but it's the truth. It's how we treat our spouses. It's how we treat our children. It's how we treat our parents that really reveals where we're at. Our true witness and our maturity in Christ is really demonstrated in the home. If you can, you can fool anybody in this setting. <laughs> Everything's just fine. That doesn't happen. You're a tyrant at home. It's going to be painful. If you go against the grain of the universe, you're going to get splinters. You violate the spiritual laws of God that he's put in place for our benefit, you're going to feel the pain. This is what it's all about. Learning how to pray. Learning how to trust. Learning how to be real with God. This is what it's all about. May we have uh, the same childlike heart as we approach our God and seek his face. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for putting these laws in place, these spiritual laws that are for our benefit, Lord. And thank you, Lord, that you are teaching us to let off the gas and just rest when we need to rest and work when we need to work. We pray, Father, for that balanced life to be centered in your will and in your purpose. And it's to those ends that we pray, Father. Make this a reality in each of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we stand?